0: Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel, at GERD Help.
1: The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDhelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. Oh, and welcome to our Tuesday Night Tip Talk. My name is Lynn McFadden with Endogastric Solutions and uh, here with me this evening is my colleague Amber. Also with me is uh, it's our pleasure to welcome our guest physician speaker Dr. Andrew Van Ostal. and I'd like to just give you a brief bio on Dr. Van Ostal. He is a general, a board-certified general surgeon at Monument Health with fellowship training in advanced minimally invasive gastrointestinal surgery. He attended undergraduate and medis- medical school at the University of South Dakota in Vermillion and completed his general surgery residency at Gunderson Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Dr. Van Ostel remained in Wisconsin after his residency to complete a fellowship in advanced minimally invasive and bariatric surgery, where he received specialty training in minimally invasive surgery with a focus on hernia, anti-reflux, and bariatrics. Dr. Van Ostel is a native of Rapid City, who enjoys running, biking, fishing, and playing with his four children. Welcome to the TIP Talk this evening, Dr. Van Ostel, and thank you for being here.
2: Yeah, thank you, Len. Thanks for having me.
1: You bet. It's our pleasure. Um, and just to, I guess, to kick things off, Dr. Van Alsdahl would you like to give us um, just a definition of what is GERD?
2: Yeah, so uh, GERD is generally, you know, stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. Um, and basically, it's stomach contents that are coming up into the esophagus. You know, our stomach makes lots lots of different enzymes and acid, especially that's meant to break down foods and proteins in foods, which our body is kind of made of. And and those enzymes and acid are meant to kind of go down the intestinal, intestinal tract. And um and there's supposed to be a valve there that keeps them from coming back up into the esophagus and can even come up into your mouth. And so Um, reflux in general, just as, is any stomach contents, so things actually making it down into your stomach and then coming back up into your esophagus and higher up in the system. Wonderful.
1: Thank you. So how do folks know they have reflux? How do they get diagnosed?
2: Yeah. So, um, first off, there's a number of, you know, symptoms that tend to be associated with reflux. So often people will notice heartburn. That's kind of the classic symptom that we think of with reflux. And that's really that acid kind of burning the esophagus. Um, But everybody's wired a little bit differently. And in general, the esophagus is kind of this transition zone where it goes from, you know, pain fibers that we can pinpoint, localize, and muscles that we control in our mouth to the rest of our intestinal tract, which really doesn't have those same pain fibers. And so some people feel heartburn, but some people don't. Um, And so there's other sort of symptoms that can be associated with reflux. Um, And that tends to happen, you know, when that reflux actually comes all the way up and can start getting in your mouth. So you can have nighttime regurgitation, chronic cough, um, even, you know, things like dental erosions from that acid coming up and eating away at your teeth. Um, And then typically, so somebody will present to their doctor with some of those symptoms. And um, it can have problems like stricturing. So they might have problems swallowing. Um, And then once we, so once we get a candidate that we believe you know, has some symptoms that are typical for reflux, then we'll begin a workup process, uh, which is kind of a series of, of tests that we do just to make sure that that's really what's going on.
1: Right. Excellent. So, um, so you have your typical symptoms or like you said, your classic symptoms, but are there atypical symptoms or things that present that others might not see as a potential symptom of
3: GERD?
2: Yeah, there's a number of things that we would consider atypical symptoms. The, the one that I think we see most commonly chronic a cough, um, but there can be a lot of other things too, uh, frequent pneumonias or aspiration events. Um, pulmonary fibrosis is one that, that I tend to see a lot of, um, and those can be people that with adult onset asthma, and they get diagnosed with asthma, and, and you know, it turns out that uh, the cause of their asthma is really these kind of micro aspiration events from reflux. Um, so most of those atypical symptoms do, though, kind of tend to revolve around upper, uh, upper airway problems, upper respiratory problems, um, like I kind of mentioned the dental erosions before. Some of the problems with those atypical symptoms are that they can be caused by lots of different things, and so they can be misdiagnosed, um, but, uh, but reflux uh, can cause those things, and, and oftentimes they tend to be multifactorial too. So maybe somebody does have some component of allergies that's causing their cough, uh, but then it's worsened by reflux. And I always kind of liken it to, um, you know, poison ivy or any sort of allergy. You know, if you, if you go out for a hike in the woods and you get some scratches on your leg and then you walk through poison ivy, that's are going to be worse because there's these mucosal breaks there. So, so reflux can even kind of worsen some of these common allergy symptoms or other symptoms that you might have just causing damage to those surfaces, which then allows other things to get in there easier too.
1: Yeah, that's a great analogy, an easy to understand analogy. Um, and it's it's really the message is get evaluated. If you're having symptoms and you're not sure what's causing them, you know, uh, find someone like you to help um, help um, evaluate and see what's at the root cause. Um, right. When when someone has uh, those symptoms, what what are some man- things to help manage reflux?
2: Yeah. So so commonly when somebody presents to their primary care physician or, or even if they're just doing a little Google MD, um, maybe they'll, they'll start seeing, okay, maybe reflux is what's going on. And so they'll start by um, taking a medication like omeprazole or Prilosec or one of those, those common forms we call those proton pump inhibitors. Um, those medications literally block the stomach from making acid. So they don't always stop the reflux from occurring. They just really take the acid out of the reflux. Um, That can really help manage a lot of those symptoms most of the time, like heartburn oftentimes will be improved with that. Um, There's a lot of lifestyle modifications people can do as well. Those would include things like not eating before bedtime. Um, Reflux is really a a kind of valve and pressure problem to initially. So anything you can do to reduce pressure in your stomach, that's going to be things like not overeating, avoiding eating before bedtime, um, not, not lying down after eating in general. Uh, are going to improve your symptoms. Unfortunately, a lot of things that worsen reflux are, I always tell people, they're, they're kind of the best things in life. It's, uh, you know, chocolate, caffeine, alcohol, <laughs> um, all that we want to eat and do before bedtime uh, really are going to worsen your reflux. So, so there are a lot of lifestyle modifications that you can do, uh, propping the head of your bed up a little bit to try to get your head elevated um, those are and those are generally the things that people will start to try on their own before coming in to see their provider, or maybe they go in to see their provider, and those that's that's where most people are going to start.
1: No, that's excellent. Thank you very much for that. Um, so once they have, um, you know, their lifestyle modifications and medications exhausted, or let's back up first. You did mention PPIs, and a lot of folks are aware of what those are, or proton pump inhibitors. Um, Do you see any long-term issues with staying on a proton pump inhibitor when they choose that option to manage their GERD?
2: That's a great question. That's one that we get a lot. Um, And, of course, there's been a lot of uh, information in the lay press in the last few years about proton pump inhibitors. And and I did kind of mention that initially, you know, acid, the stomach uh, makes acid. And it makes acid for a reason, right? Our body doesn't just do things to do them for fun. It it generally does things for a reason. So so that acid that's in our stomach does help. uh, It's kind of your body's first line of defense. Maybe if you eat a bacteria or something something that you shouldn't have, um, it does help your body digest foods and absorb certain vitamins and and calcium and things like that. And so there are associations. um, And this is a little bit of a difficult thing to talk about because, um, it's really hard for us to know for sure uh, with some of these, but there's definitely associations between people being on those medications for a long time and certain other disease processes. So I, I do think it's important to emphasize that there's no direct cause and effect that's been shown with these, but there's definitely associations. So people that take PPIs for a long period of time, we're talking 5, 10, 15, 20 years, um, they're at an increased risk of osteoporosis, um, interestingly, Alzheimer's disease, cardiovascular disease. Um uh, certain pathogens of the GI tract, like C. difficile colitis, pneumonia, heart attacks. Interestingly, if they have a heart attack, they're also more likely to die from it. Um, but again, it's hard for us to know how, how much PPIs are really contributing to those things. So they're definitely things to take into account. Alzheimer's is the one that I, I um, always use as an example because everybody's scared of Alzheimer's. Um, and it's a relatively rare disease. So you know your risk of Alzheimer's if you're on a PPI is, uh, is twice as high. Uh, than it would be just for the general population. But it's a relatively low risk in the general population. So that risk in the general population is only about 0.75%. So if you're on a PPI, it's only about 1.5%, meaning that you're still pretty likely to never get Alzheimer's. Um, but certainly if you're, if you have a family history of it, or you're worried about it for some other reason, it's something to consider.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. It's, it's you know, some some people are very adept at using the internet and figuring those things out on their own, and reading a lot about those uh, potential health concerns associated with PPIs. But you know, when they they are they do work for some. But you you mentioned one thing that I think was interesting, and maybe you can examine it a little bit too. You mentioned GERD being an anatomical issue. So can you talk a little bit about that? I, you know, some people I think think that GERD can just go away on its own. What's you know the the core of that statement.
2: Yeah. So, so I kind of mentioned, you know, GERD is really a, a, a pressure and a valve problem. And so, um, there can be lots of different reasons for people to have maybe increased pressure in their stomach that can force stuff up, or maybe that valve has begun to deteriorate and break down a little bit the valve that we have that's supposed to be stopping reflux is really meant to be a pressure relief valve. We want things to come up sometimes, right? If you need to belch or, or vomit, um, it, it would really, it's very uncomfortable if you can't do those things, right? So we really want to have a pressure relief valve there. And as, as time goes by in general, and unfortunately, like many other Things in our body, that valve does start to deteriorate for for various reasons, um, and so uh, things that, or potentially, the stomach can actually be not empty, well, or maybe weight can contribute to reflux. So increased pressure in the stomach, maybe is overcoming a, a relatively good valve, or maybe it's or it's just a bad valve, and there's normal pressures in the stomach. Um, so reflux in general can be caused by different things, and that's part of our, our kind of. Way in, in out really what's the cause of this person's reflux and, and how can we then best uh, treat it?
1: Right, thank you. Uh, we do have a couple questions coming in. I don't know if you want to pause here and uh, maybe Amber if you want to. Uh, I think it uh, looks like there's a, about two questions that came in so far. So
3: Amber, if you want to take it away. Yeah, we have a few here. So you talked a little bit about the risks of PPIs. Christian asked, can PPIs become less effective over time? And we have another from Haley saying, I've been on PPIs for a while and I don't wanna take a pill every day. How should she approach her PCP to see if she's a good candidate for the TIP procedure?
2: Yeah, so both great questions. First off, yes, we do see um, the body adapts really well, unfortunately, and includes adaptations to medications. And so what we see is that most people with classic TIP typical heartburn symptoms, about 90% of them will have good relief when they start taking a PPI. Two years down the road, two to three years down the road, only about 70% of people will still be having good relief with their PPI. So as time goes by, those medications do become less effective. We can increase the dose or switch them to a different medication, but there does come a point where we can no longer do that. And unfortunately, some of the stronger forms of, of PPIs do tend to get really expensive as well. So Um, whether it be for financial reasons or maybe somebody just um, like Haley doesn't want to take a medication every day. Um, Oftentimes there does come to a point where that dose is escalated, where the person says, hey, you know, I I don't want to do this anymore. And that's really um, a great conversation to have with your PCP, or you can directly refer to to us. I think that, um, you know, we'll give our clinic contact information at the end of this video or looking on the TIFF website to find somebody who uh, does these procedures as well. Um, but but most of the time you can direct refer to somebody to an anti-reflux surgeon of some sort as well. Uh, but really asking your your is, is a great place to start too. And just tell them, hey, you know, I've been on this medication for a long time. I'm starting to have more and more breakthrough symptoms. Um, I, I know that there's some risk associated with it and I don't want to be on it anymore. What are my options?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great, a great response and thank you for that. Um, we, we're all about Uh, helping folks understand that they can advocate and they can push and ask for those options and um, have those discussions is key. Having those discussions is key.
2: Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of um, some anti-reflux procedures historically have gotten a bad rap. There are lots of options out there, the TIF being just one of them. And so one of the things that I think is important to emphasize in that is trying to find a surgeon who who does have kind of multiple tools in their toolbox so that they can find the right one that works for you? Um, historically, there was really just one procedure that almost everybody did and got. Therefore, um, and it's kind of the old analogy of you know if, if all you have is a hammer, everything becomes a nail. As mm-hmm. um, a nail.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: And so what you um, really want to do is find somebody who does multiple different things so that you know that you're getting the right procedure, and that's. A lot of PCPs do have reluctance in referring to, to surgeons um, because historically they saw that happening where maybe people weren't getting the right procedure for them and therefore weren't having very good outcomes. So, so it really is important to um, have that discussion with your PCP, and but also try to find somebody who you know kind of has a full uh, set of tools in their toolbox.
1: Excellent advice. And every in, every individual is different. Their anatomy is different. So what might have been right for your friend down the road might not necessarily be what's right for you.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, so that's it's excellent advice. And there, there's a plethora of treatment options out there. So having those discussions, letting your doctor evaluate you and um, having making those decisions together. Amber,
3: was there another question that you'd like to pose? Yeah, this is a great of those other options. We have a few questions here. So from Matt, is a TIF made out of a metal, is a TIF made out of metal, like the links thing? And then from Jeffrey, I had a Nissan fund application seven years ago, and I've been told it's failed. Is TIF a good option after having a Nissan?
2: Yeah, so those are, are both great questions. So two of the other options, and, and there are other ones out there too, but two of the more common ones are the, the Lynx device and the uh, Nissen fund application. There's other forms of fund applications as well. Um, and the, the fund application is basically and, and this is partly how the, the TIF works. It, it's really considered a type of fundoplication, but a, a partial fundoplication. So we're kind of taking the top of the stomach and wrapping it around the base of the esophagus. And in this, and it goes all the way 360 degrees around the esophagus. Um, in the, the TIF or, or uh, partial funglications, it goes part of the way around the esophagus, leaving some kind of natural esophagus there. Um, so, so first off, the, the TIF is not uh, made. Any metal, it, it does have a, a certain type of uh, plastic um, implant that uh, kind of helps to hold that wrap in place. Um, it's it's the plastic implants are kind of they're called H fasteners. They're kind of like the things that hold your socks together when you buy a new pair of socks. So they literally kind of you know uh, T barb out, and so you have uh, one on the stomach side held to one on the esophageal side that's kind of holding that together. Um, those will often pass through with time, and, and that's okay. Um, part of that process creates scarring between the esophagus and the stomach, which holds things in place long term. Um, so those implants are, are technically kind of permanent, but but oftentimes they will pass through with time, and, and they'll just kind of your bowels and not cause any problems. Um, so it's it's not metal; it's non-metallic. Uh, it is MRI safe, things like that. Um, in somebody that's had a, a Nissen fundoplication in the past, so that's kind of one of the. Downsides of the Nissan fund applications, we do tend to see, you know, um, a lot of times because that wrap is, is all the way around, um, a lot of people will have troubles getting things back up. So, we talked about we really want a pressure relief valve. And so, oftentimes um, with the Nissan, the, the classic story of a failed Nissan is somebody who had it done, had control of their reflux, but wasn't able to belch or vomit until maybe and on average it's about seven years down the road. You know, they'll say, oh, yeah, I got food poisoning or, or I got sick and, and, I, and I actually threw up. You know, it was the first time in seven years I actually threw up. And ever since then, I've had reflux again. And um, so it certainly is an option actually to go back in with the TIF and, and kind of tighten that valve up. Um, it does depend on kind of what else is going on in your anatomy. Is there any height or hernia component? Um, so, so our things kind of moving up into the chest a little bit and, uh, and what all's going on there? But, but that is something that, um, I do very commonly actually, um, because I find converting somebody from a Nissen, uh, uh is something that's actually somewhat difficult to do. So, so when we do a Nissen fund location, the first time we do it, there's about a 90% chance that we're going to have good success and, and reflux is going to be controlled, um, the second time, so somebody has to have a revised Nissen, it's only about a 70% chance. So kind of like with PPIs failing with time, every time we have to go back in there, things get harder. Um, the TIF allows us to uh, kind of enter a different plane, so to speak, and fix it in a different way. So what we see is, is really a very good results actually with somebody who's had a failed Nissen and then being able to kind of go back in with the TIF and, and tighten things up a little bit to, to get their recurrent reflux to go away. That's Sorry, I might have rambled there a
1: little bit. No, it, that was a fabulous explanation, and um, I just want to back up too a little bit. Uh, we we are hearing a lot of questions about the TIF procedure, and um, I, I I heard your explanation about it being a partial fund application and kind of comparing that to the what is often called the gold standard or Nissen. Um, when you talked about that wrap and um, the dip, the variance between the two procedures and the wrap itself, what uh, are you seeing the same? outcomes um, when you compare TIF to a Nissen, what are some of the differences in those potential outcomes?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I kind of mentioned the Nissen, um, you know, I, I said about 90% of people will have good control of symptoms right away. And I and I should give a caveat to that, you know, that's in that's in good hands. So, one of the downsides of the Nissen is that it's, it's very much an art. Um, the, there's little objectivity to it. And so, it's very surgeon dependent as to what kind of outcomes you have. Unfortunately, you know, getting it not too tight, not too loose um, is it can be hard. You know, it's kind of like the Goldilocks and the three bears. You really want to get it perfect. And if you err on one side or the other, you're going to have problems. Too tight. Obviously, people can't get stuff down. They can't get anything back up too loose and, and they're going to be having reflux again. Um, so unfortunately, that percent number is with somebody who does a lot of Nissen, okay? So so I, I should give that caveat first. One of the advantages of the TIF is that it's a little bit more objective in how it's performed, giving us a little bit more standardized outcomes. Um, and so what we see is, is probably closer to 80 to 90% of people um, symptom-free and off their PPIs, TIF, and that's pretty consistent though across the board. So even if you have a surgeon who doesn't, hasn't done as many of them, or, or doesn't do them as frequently, they're, they're still gonna have pretty consistent outcomes um, because the procedure itself is is um, a lot more objective. And so, and then the other thing is with that Nissen, I kind of mentioned, you know, a lot of people, and, and depending on what study you read, you know, it's probably 70 to 80% of people can't belch or vomit after the Nissen fundoplication. whereas with the TIF, the vast majority of people don't have any problems. Belch or vomiting afterwards. So part of that consistency is being able to get it kind of not too tight but not too loose to where we're going to have good control of symptoms without um, causing any unwanted side effects.
1: Yeah, thank you. And and you brought up a great point. It's really you know that that repetitiveness and that skill set that's developed over time. And it's going to depend on you know your surgeon and their uh, how many how many they've done. And there can be that variance that uh, you just don't know. So I. I yeah, right. I, right I love that you touched on the reproducibility of the TIF and that the dependability of that too. Um, when you're talking about um, you know how to how to manage reflux, you've touched on several um, you know different interventions medically, um, surgically. Um, what we get a lot of questions about preparation for a surgical intervention. Um, so what is the preparation like? And and we can talk about post, pre and post, uh, for the TIP procedure yeah. in particular?
2: Um, first off, I guess I'll say, you know, I, I didn't really go into the diagnostic workup very much, but but one of the main things that, I, that we really want to emphasize, and we, we talked a little bit about that, of finding out why you have reflux. But, you know, one of the first things we have to do is really prove that you have reflux because unfortunately people don't, you know, and especially with the atypical symptoms like cough or frequent pneumonias, you know, those can be caused by lots of things. So one of the things we want to do first is just really, prove that you actually have reflux and that is what's causing things. Um, you know, uh, and, and it might even be that you're having symptoms, those symptoms from esophageal problems, but it's not stomach contents coming back up. It's that your esophagus never really clears that well. And so things are kind of hanging out in the esophagus and coming back up. It's not stomach contents coming back up. And so, uh, you know, our workup is gonna involve things like doing an endoscopy, just putting a scope down, looking at the inside of the stomach, looking at the inside of the esophagus. Typically doing some sort of of acid test. Um, The most common one is called a Bravo study where we actually pin a little catheter or a little uh, capsule on the inside of your esophagus and it actually measures acid in the esophagus. And we just use acid as as a a surrogate for uh, stomach contents essentially. And so um, objectifying how much reflux you're having and and trying to correlate that with your symptoms. And then the other thing we wanna do is just kind of is there a hiatal hernia component? So, so is that valve failing? Is the stomach not emptying well? Kind of what's going on as far as those pressures there? Um, and we can do that in a few different ways. Um, and and then really looking at how well the esophagus is squeezing down as well, because that um, can can you know like I mentioned, you know if you're if you're having problems getting things down, that can uh, make treatment of your reflux a little bit more difficult as well. So. There's multiple ways that we can do that, but the most common way is to do something called manometry, where we we put a catheter in your nose, and it has a bunch of little pressure sensors on it. We have you swallow, and we just measure it. Um, I've done that test myself just to say I did it, and it's not fun. (laughs) But it it is definitely not the worst thing I've been through. (laughs) Um, We don't get people lining back up to do that one again, though. (laughs) Well,
1: I love that you tried it on yourself just to be able to tell patients that you can you have empathy. <laughs>
2: yeah, right. 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 And and so that's kind of, you know, going to be the first part of that process is is really the workup of just proving that you actually have reflux that that's actually what's causing your symptoms and figuring out what procedure might be best for you to treat it. So if that procedure does happen to be the TIF um, then as far as kind of preparation for doing that, you know, that's one of the really great things about the Tiff is it's a very minimally invasive procedure. It's really, there's no incisions. There's no, so um, basically, you know, if you're on blood thinners or dependent on medications, we might have to stop some of those, but otherwise it's really, there's there's not a whole lot of, of prep work uh, that goes into it beforehand.
1: Wonderful. So. Um, any diet restrictions? A lot of folks will ask. Hey, do I have to lose weight before I get a procedure? Do I have to, you know, do all this work beforehand? Um, and diet is always a big one. So
2: yeah. So that. and, and that's a great question too. We do, um, you know, I, as I kind of mentioned, uh, weight is a risk factor for GERD. So the more weight you have, the more pressure there is pushing stuff back up. So again, we're we're dealing with these pressures in this valve, and so. Um, the more pressure you have pushing stuff back up because we want it to be a pressure relief valve, at some point, yeah, you, you might have enforcing that valve. Um, and so at some point it does come into play, um, and that's where, you know, especially with somebody like myself where I also focus a lot on, on bariatric surgery, you know, we might recommend you do something like a gastric bypass rather than a TIF, and, and the bypass has this uh, great potential of, treating reflux and helping you lose weight at the same time. So, in somebody who's interested in losing weight, that can be a really great option and can kind of kill two birds with one stone. Um, or, uh, in general, I, d- I don't make people lose weight before a TIF, um, depending on what their BMI is. Um, but I definitely have that discussion with everybody, especially as their BMI tends to get over about 35 is where we kind of start saying, hey, you know, this, this might not be the right thing for you and you really should be considering doing a bypass.
1: No, and, and again, it points to, you know, get evaluated, see what's right for you, let your doctor have those conversations with you, and um, really talk through what your treatment options are, and there are a, a wealth of them, and uh, so many people, there's all, everyone's different, so there's something out there for everyone, I guess, is the moral.
2: Yeah, absolutely, so the, the bottom line is, if we figure out that reflux is your problem, um, it might be that the TIF isn't the right thing for you, uh, but we're not going to leave you high and dry and just say, good luck.
1: Exactly. And, yeah. and we're
2: also not going to expect you to lose a bunch of weight um, before doing a procedure that, um, yeah.
1: Well, I think that's important information to convey to the audience.
2: Um, I'm going to pause real quick again with Amber.
1: I think we had a couple other questions in the queue that I wanted to give you some time to um, go ahead and.
3: Yeah. Um, so them. we have um, three questions here. I'll try and uh, say them quickly. So. Um, greetings from Texas, my uh, wife has GERD and has to miss out on things like barbecue and Mexican food. Can the TIP procedure help to eat fun foods again? Uh, we have another one, my wife's a teacher, her ENT says that GERD is being caused by having to push her words out and talking loud through a face mask all day. Her PPI drugs that he put her on aren't working, what would you suggest?
2: Yeah. So, first off, um, that's a great you know thing that's about quality of life. So it's really rare to have a patient in the office where you know they are they've got pulmonary fibrosis or they're having these recurrent pneumonias, and I say, hey, you you need to do this to save your life. <laughs> Much more frequently, um, this is really about quality of life, and and so it goes back to, hey, I don't want to take a PPI every day, or or I don't want the risk of Alzheimer's. You know, this is this is that's really what this is all about is saying, hey. I, I live in a place where, you know, socializing, everything is about going to barbecues, and I can't do that right now. I can't go out and be with my friends. I'm having to, to hide at home, and this is affecting my quality of life. What can I do differently? And that is a, a great time to consider doing something like this or some sort of anti-reflux procedure where um, it's going to allow you to be able to go and enjoy a barbecue again and, and enjoy a dinner uh, and potentially a drink with your friends and not be miserable for the next couple of days. Um, and I'm sorry, I kind of forgot the other question.
3: <laughs> no, that, that's great. They were long ones. Um, so my wife's a teacher. Her ENT says that oh, yeah. her GERD is being caused by speaking loudly through a mask and her PPI drugs are no longer working.
0: What would you yeah. suggest?
2: So, so same thing there. You know. So I mean, one option is to you know not be a teacher anymore. Obviously, that's not a great option. <laughs> um, so it's about quality of load. So, so if, if she wants to be able to keep her job, Um, and if they think that that's a big part of the reflux is, is yeah, having to yell, which really increases the intra-abdominal pressure and can push, you know, you're pushing everything up, essentially. Um, uh, something like a TIF or an anti-reflux procedure can, can really improve quality of life if the medications aren't helping anymore.
1: Yeah. Thank you for those, Amber. and, And thank you, doctor, for those explanations. Um, we hear that so much, um, you know, quality of life. I can't, I can't, Participate in family activities. I can't play with my grandkids. I can't bend over and tie my shoe or lay down at night without refluxing. So, absolutely, when you do get some kind of intervention, no doubt your quality of life improves. And we hear it so often from folks who have had a procedure like the TIP procedure done, and they sing it from the rooftops that they wish they did it sooner. Um, so yeah. it's it's excellent advice. Thank you.
2: And and I'll say too, you know, along that line, I'm. Mean, I mean, I hear so frequently people have maybe been putting up with something, you know, so long, this is like the old frog in boiling pot of water analogy, you know, where if you put a frog in a boiling pot of water, it'll jump back out. If you put them in water and boil it, he will boil to death. And and so many people, because reflux is a progressive disease, meaning that it kind of slowly comes on with time and slowly gets worse, they they do tend to just kind of go, oh, this is, you know, I'm getting older, this is my life now. And and they, they kind of just say, well, there's nothing I can do about this, and and they, they almost get used to or naturalize a lot of symptoms. And, and then all of a sudden those symptoms go away and they go, wow, <laughs> my quality of life is so much better. How much this bothered me or how often I was waking up at night or whatever. And I sleep so much better now. Um, so it is kind of fun to see that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, you're helping and they got the help they needed. And really when we do these talks and we do educations like this and it's to help people understand there are options out there. You don't have to live miserably. Um, and maybe the advice you were given five years ago, there could be new treatment options that are have entered the picture that might be ideal for you. So to you know consistently advocate for yourself and keep talking to your doctor about your, your symptoms and, and the disease, and hopefully uh, eventually get to somebody like you to, to get some help and intervention. Um, are are you hearing those comments from your patients, Dr. Van Osdahl, Those quality of life statements when you see them after the TIF procedure?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think I think probably the one that I hear the most, or that surprises people the most, is how much better they sleep. Um, mm, I think yeah. that a lot of people don't realize kind of how much that's bothering them at night, and they they again they just kind of maybe they maybe they don't even wake up. Sometimes it's their spouse that comments yeah. on it. And it's not. Uh, but that's the one that I hear most commonly is, I just, did you give me something to help me sleep? I sleep so much better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's excellent. We love to hear those things and very common feedback. I sleep better. I do more. I want to exercise now. I want to live my life. I want to, I've, I've reclaimed my life reflux free and and I'm living a happier life now. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, We didn't talk too much about recovery, um, but I do wanna pause for a sec and just see, Amber, do we have any other questions you might wanna toss in here now?
3: Yeah, We do have two more, thank you, Lynn. So Romy asked, I was diagnosed with antral gastritis with the endoscopy. I'm being pretty strict with the diet and taking medicines, but I have symptoms such as burning sensation in stomach and chest, and it also dries out my mouth. Any guidance for this?
2: Yeah, so gastroesophageal um, gastritis is something that's ca- kind of non-specific, so hard to really go off of entirely, but but pretty common for us to see, um, and can be caused by lots of things. So so just kind of off the bat, you know, it's it's hard for me to give really solid advice as to what to do next. But I would just say kind of making sure that a thorough workup was done, seeing how much reflux is contributing, and that is something where you know maybe maybe there is some component of. of bile coming back up or, or maybe the stomach not emptying well, and that's part of that irritation and that could be contributing to some of that reflux. So, so it kind of sounds to me like a little bit more workup needs to be done before, um, before really uh, teasing that out. And, th- and there's a number of things, you know, w- which we haven't really touched on and, and that are, you know, related to reflux. And so, so gastroparesis, the, the stomach not emptying well is, is a common one to see with people that have gastritis. And that is where, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll read on the internet. And and so sometimes I get this question of, you know, well, I read that lemon juice or apple cider vinegar can help reflux. And, and that is actually true in people that have gastric emptying problems because acid is actually a stimulant for your stomach to empty. So in those people, they might notice they take PPIs and and now their stomach isn't making acid. and And so their reflux has actually been worse. Um, and some of their symptoms are even worse because it's really their stomach not emptying well. And so now we've we've taken away the system empty. And so even having them stop their PPIs and and, and it's a little bit counterintuitive because especially if there's irritation in the stomach and, and I, I can't tell this person for sure that that's what's going on, but, but using this as an example of sometimes things are a little counterintuitive. And so it might be that even, you know, adding acid to the stomach rather than taking it out would help that person. And so um, kind of lots of, things to, to think about there. Um, and it sounds like just a little bit more workup might need to be done.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Amber, was there another one? Good.
3: Yeah, we do have one more. Um, so can I still get the TIF procedure if I have Barrett's esophagus?
2: Yes. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great question. Um, and it is, again, you know, there's there's lots of things to consider there, but um, absolutely that that would not be considered a contraindication to have in the TIF procedure.
1: Excellent, thank you.
2: In fact, yeah, that that would be a reason to consider doing it. You know, and somebody who has Barrett's esophagus, that's definitely a reason where you kind of say, okay, I know that my risk of esophageal cancer is higher and I wanna do everything I can to stop reflux from occurring. Remembering that, you know, PPIs are are really not stopping reflux from occurring, they're just taking the acid out of it. So there's still other carcinogenic things in the stomach. And so just uh, while a PPI can help reduce that risk, you know, really what we wanna do is stop the reflux from occurring, not not just take the acid out of it. So that's, you know, somebody that has Barrett's esophagus, that's absolutely a reason to consider doing something a little bit more aggressive to stop your reflux.
1: Thank you for that, doctor. Um, and why is that? Um, maybe talk to us a little bit about the potential progression, the d- disease progression, if it's not managed or caught early on and uh, managed in with medications or, or, or otherwise.
2: Yeah, so um, I'll, I don't know if you want the long answer, to the <laughs> answer on this, but I'll give you the long answer. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, Barrett's esophagus is really what we call metaplasia. So, um, so metaplasia is a fancy word that means normal cells in an abnormal location. And so in this case, it's actually intestinal cells that are in the esophagus. And it's not that those intestinal cells have migrated up into the esophagus. It's that the esophageal cells start to morph into intestinal type of cells. So, so the most common form of esophageal cancer in this country, this adenocarcinoma, is, is related to this morphine process where acid and digestive enzymes are coming up and damaging the esophagus. And those esophageal cells aren't really made to deal with acid and digestive enzymes. So they'll start to morph into intestinal type of cells that are better able to deal with acid and digestive enzymes. So that's the first step in that process is that that intestinal metaplasia or Barrett's esophagus. So once we start seeing that occurring, we know that that person has about a a 25 to 30 times higher risk of esophageal cancer. Now, like anything, uh, we can give numbers in different ways and it sounds really scary when we say that, because esophageal cancer is a really, really rare cancer, which is a good thing because it's a bad one to get. Um, It's almost universally fatal within six months, or it's got about a six month life expectancy. So it's definitely one that you don't want to have, but the risk of esophageal cancer is only about 0.01% in the general population. So that means even if your risk with Barrett's esophagus is 25 to 30 times higher, that risk is still only about 0.25% per year. So it's not something that you should be losing sleep over at night but it's definitely something to kind of consider doing something more about. The next step then is we've kind of set metaplasia. So they're still normal cells, they're intestinal types of cells, but they're in the esophagus. Um, as, As we continue to see damage occurring, That'll start to actually turn into dysplasia, and dysplasia is that truly precancerous change, where those are the cells that that have given enough time will turn into cancer, and that's when your your risk of esophageal cancer really starts to go up, and we we really start to get a lot more aggressive in saying, okay, we need to get rid of those cells, we need to do something about this, um, and so uh, and then from dysplasia, obviously, it, it eventually turns into cancer.
1: Gotcha. And we're asked about that correlation often and a lot of times you find that patients aren't aware they don't realize that the disease can can progress it doesn't always but it can um, again pointing back to the same thing we were stressing earlier about uh, early detection early early cure and getting evaluated to find out what's going on and what can be done about it interventionally um, so thank you for that um, Let's talk a little bit about recovery. That's always a big question on these talks and in general. Uh, what's recovery like after uh, the TIF procedure or an anti-reflux procedure?
2: Yeah, so in, in general with the TIF procedure, um, you know, if we're able to do it all through the mouth, um, the recovery is, is really fairly simple. The biggest complaint that I hear from patients is just really a sore throat. Um, it does kind of hurt to swallow for a couple of days. Um, and that's partly just because we're sticking this device down their mouth and, and it does, really irritate their esophagus. Um, But in general, uh, um, there's going to be some swelling in there. So I kind of always tell people, you know, if I, even if I get everything perfect, there's going to be some swelling initially. So it's going to be a little bit tight for the first uh, couple of weeks. So generally we'll have people on kind of a liquid only diet for about a week. And then, and then I'll tell them they can have kind of mushy foods for a week after, and then after a couple of weeks, they can go back on really just regular foods. Um, and that's really just a comfort thing. Um, be, most people are going to find it just more tolerable to kind of stick with liquids. Um, the big thing there, of course, as a, as a weight loss guy is making sure you're getting enough protein to maintain your muscle yeah. mass while losing weight or, or losing the wrong weight during that time. So, you know, protein smoothies, berry smoothies, things like that. Uh, any way that you can kind of get protein in a liquid form is really important, especially here in the Midwest. Um, people tend to think if they can't eat Solid foods; they can't eat meat. <laughs> they, yes. There's no protein involved in their diet, so really making sure that that they're uh, getting protein still in some way.
1: Well, no, that's great advice, and um, thank you for that, Amber. I'll ask you if there are any other questions to to close us out, and then I'll I'll let you say a few closing words to Dr. Van Osdal.
3: Yeah, um, so I I would like to hear a little bit more about those uh, mushy foods. Do you have any recommendations for maybe what you tell your patients for recipes after the tip procedure?
2: Yeah, so um, first off, I I love berry smoothies. And and so I tell them, you know, put some, get some vanilla protein powder or whatever, whatever, financial budget and and taste. And, you know, making uh, a protein berry smoothie these is I think a great option. You can even add some, you know, flax seed to get some fiber in there and things like that. Um, you can also even, you know, so in that kind of second week doing things like, you know, mashed sweet potatoes or, or, or even mashed potatoes, yogurt, especially Greek yogurt, that's a great kind of um, high protein uh, food as well. Uh, but really anything that's kind of been, you know, through a blender essentially is gonna, is gonna be something that'll probably be okay.
1: Excellent. Now I'm hungry all of a sudden. I wonder why. <laughs> How about anything else, Amber?
3: No, I think we've got all the questions in the chat.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you for, thank you for helping with those. Uh, Dr. Ganasdahl, in closing, uh, what it was like for our physician speakers to have an opportunity to talk a little bit about themselves, their practice, and um, what, I would say, what's the best advice you would give someone who May have this disease, and they're reluctant to take the next steps.
2: Yeah, I, I really think um, best advice to give is is kind of what I already said, and just uh, trying to find somebody who has multiple tools in the toolbox. Um, you know, personally, of course, I'm biased. I always tell people I'm I'm a surgeon, so <laughs> so that that affects my worldview. <laughs> um, but uh, but finding somebody who especially has that kind of weight loss component too, because unfortunately, that is. know, it's a lot of patients that we see that come in for really in the long run, a a weight loss operation is going to be maybe a better fit for them. And so making sure that you find somebody that kind of has a full armamentarium or full set of tools in their toolbox, or at least is going to be able to get you to the right person. Um, So often it is the case where maybe it's not, you know, maybe they don't do weight loss surgery too, but they have a partner that does or something like that. Um, But just making sure that they're going to be trying to do the right thing for you and get you to the right person that you need to be going to um absolutely talk to your primary care doctors because they're the ones who really are going to be able to tell you who, who to go to and who not to go to and kind of help help along in that process um and and just you know kind of trying to talk to your doctor about them. I mean, you you've mentioned that I, I feel like a couple of times here um but it, it, the the internet's not always the best source of my, uh you know, for um, for reflux or for medical opinions in general, um, it's fine to talk to people. And it's good to talk to people that have had this done. And you can often find communities on Facebook or, or whatever social platform you use um, to try to talk to people that have had things done, but, but you do have to kind of take things with a grain of salt too. And um, so just getting lots of different opinions, I think is a good idea.
1: Yeah, it's great advice. We all know um, Google MD, trust but verify, right?
2: <laughs> right, right.
1: Um, thank you for thank you for that and how about uh, tell folks how they can find you I know we have your contact information up on the screen but if you want to close out telling us a little bit about your your practice and uh, who they might talk to when they call or anything like
2: that yeah so uh, I'm a, I'm a, obviously in Spearfish South Dakota um, we uh, because we're in kind of a rural part of the world we um, do end up getting patients from a long ways away so we've had patients from up to four to five hundred miles away and and uh, so we do really try to do a good job we actually have a program coordinator uh, Becky is her name she does a great job of kind of recognizing if somebody lives further away and trying to get them set up so that we can do kind of a clinic visit and diagnostic diagnostic testing all at the same time Um, telehealth has really made a lot of that easier too so we can do visits over the phone with people and and um get a little bit of an introduction that way to make sure that we're gonna kind of maximize their time and efficiency so they're not having to come to our clinic for multiple different things. Um, so if you call the number that's there on the screen, Becky is the one that you're gonna get. If she doesn't answer right away, just leave a message. She's very good at calling you. Um, and she really is our uh, the brains behind our organization. She keeps everything in line and, and does a great job of making sure that people are um, where they need to be at the right time and, and in the best way possible for them.
1: That's awesome well definitely folks online tonight if you're in uh, spearfish South Dakota give dr. Van Osdahl a call and and chat with Becky um, and how fortunate you are to have a Becky not every not everyone has that and, and uh, oh, yes. that's, it, it's a
0: great
1: it, it's a great uh, benefit to the patients they kind of have a navigator to help them go get through some of those often hurdles or barriers to care so uh thank you for pointing that out and becky if you're watching thank you for all you're doing on, on behind the scenes um, and thank you too, dr van osdal we just love having you on tonight and sharing your expertise um, and amber thank you for your help with the questions um, i wanted the folks tonight on on the uh, live segment tonight to know too that there's um a website called uh, GERDhelp.com and there's a Physician Finder tool on there so if you're out of that uh, Spearfish South Dakota or how many miles did you say your Cashman area is <laughs> if you're out of that thousands of miles away uh, you can go to GERDhelp.com and you can search by zip code or state uh, there's a Physician Finder in the upper right hand corner in bright orange so you can you can go there also on GERDhelp.com you can download uh, there's instructions on downloading a mobile app that um we find is super helpful for folks who struggle with reflux. Um, it's loaded with articles and information, um, and it really helps you just diary your GERD journey and um, helps you kind of recount your days and how you've been struggling and helps having those conversations with your docs when you do go in for those visits. It could be your PCP, your specialist, um, you know, whatever doctor you're seeing, talk to them about your reflux put it on their radar let them know you're struggling um so feel free to download that up and um as always we we do these every tuesday so uh you're welcome to tune in again and uh want to thank everybody for joining and again thank you for your time dr van ostal
2: yeah thank you thanks for having me
0: you bet it's our pleasure thanks amber if you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERDhelp mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tiff Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERDhelp. Live well, GERD free.